Hey everyone, it's MSNBC's Chris Hayes. For the first time since 1892, we have an election in which both candidates have presidential records. It's a chance to take a hard look at what Joe Biden and Donald Trump have actually done as president. On a special Why Is This Happening podcast series called With Pod 2024 The Stakes, I'm talking to experts about the two candidates' records on specific policy areas like immigration, taxes, climate, and more. So you know what's at stake come November. Search for Why Is This Happening and follow. Tonight on The Readout. I think his involvement is clear uh, and and it, it, every drop of new evidence that emerges in the public arena only underscores that. All of it really manifested itself in a multifaceted, national, coordinated, illegal effort to interfere with the will of the voters and overturn it. Michigan's secretary of state on the special counsel investigation into Trump's attempt to overturn the election tonight. A look at how Jack Smith's prosecution of that plot could play out. Plus, breaking news in that investigation with reporting tonight that Trump's son-in-law, Jared Kushner, has testified to the January 6th grand jury. Also, the radical normalcy of Joe Biden on the world stage. He's leading a united NATO after his predecessor publicly sided with Putin over U.S. intelligence leaders. And Hollywood showdown. The actors have joined the writers on strike. What they're fighting for and how it will affect what you see on TV and the movies. But we begin tonight with breaking news in the special counsel's investigation into Donald Trump's efforts to try to remain in power after his 2020 election loss. Late this afternoon, the New York Times reported that federal prosecutors have questioned multiple witnesses in recent weeks, including Trump's son-in-law, Jared Kushner, on whether Trump had privately acknowledged in the days after the 2020 election that he had lost. Jared Kushner was not the only one of Trump's closest advisors. But as MSNBC legal analyst Lisa Rubin reminded me, other than Trump advisor Jason Miller, no one was more involved in the post-election fundraising efforts pushing the big lie than Jared. That could also mean the campaign finance angle of the investigation is also very much alive. It's the latest sign of a potential third indictment for the twice impeached, twice indicted former president and the second coming from special counsel Jack Smith. While Smith has already brought charges against Trump for his mishandling of classified documents, as we see, he has also been hard at work on this other investigation. And from what we've been able to learn, it goes well beyond just the events of January 6th, including everything in the months leading up to the attack on the U.S. Capitol. In particular, we're also learning more about the special counsel's investigation into how Trump and his allies tried to pressure state officials to help overturn their state's election results, as well as forming the so-called alternate slates of electors in states Joe Biden won. Michigan Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson is now confirming that she spoke with federal prosecutors as part of that probe back in March. She joins the Secretary of State from some of other 2020, some of the other 2020 battleground states, Arizona, Georgia, and Nevada, who have either been subpoenaed or have already spoken with the special counsel's team. And there are signs that the grand jury investigating Trump's efforts are back at it in the D.C. federal courthouse. One of the special counsel's lead investigators in that case, Thomas Windham, was spotted entering the building this morning. He was also seen there on Tuesday. 
Now, as far as we can tell, no notable witnesses were spotted in the courthouse on either day, making us wonder why else would he be there with the grand jury if no witnesses were present? If Jack Smith were to go forward with an indictment, it begs the questions. What would it look like? Well, a group of seven former prosecutors and defense attorneys with decades of constitutional and criminal law experience laid out just that in what's called a prosecution memorandum, something federal prosecutors would prepare before bringing an indictment. It would include admissible evidence, possible charges, and legal issues. And joining me now is attorney Joshua Stanton, one of the co-authors of that model prosecution menu. And Paul Butler, former federal prosecutor, Georgetown law professor, and MSNBC legal analyst. Uh, Thank you both for being here. And and I do want to start with you, Joshua. If you could just sort of walk us through, I read the introduction to the memorandum that you all created, but walk us through sort of in simple terms what this prosecution memorandum alleges and what you think can be proven by Jack Smith if he were to prosecute a case like this? Well, we took the evidence that we found in the public record, much of which was pulled together by the January 6th committee and very helpfully uh, released in a report, along with a whole host of supporting documents, which we looked through. Um, Since then, there's also been quite a bit of public reporting. And so we analyzed all of that and essentially realized that probably the the best case that special counsel Jack Smith could bring would be a kind of three-act case focusing on strategies that Trump and his lawyers and lawyers for his campaign put together uh, in order to try to overturn the election through both legal and illegal means in the court and uh, in the White House itself. And when that failed, pushing uh, uh, Vice President Mike Pence to himself uh, overturn the election uh, in favor of Trump. And when that appeared to be failing, moving on to a third act and on January 6th itself, using his massive supporters, um, either bringing them there in order to actually engage in this insurrection, or a minimum, once they had moved into the White House, uh, knowingly failing to stop this this assault uh, on, on the Capitol. Uh, and so in each one of those stages, there are a whole host of federal crimes that that Trump and others could be charged with. Right. And I mean, it is really you lay it out. Uh, you all lay it out so well. And I want to big up Barbara McQuaid, who apparently uh, inspired some of the work that uh, you all did uh, and who works also with Just Security as one of the uh, members of you all's team. But um the three acts, right? So Trump knows he lost, but he doesn't want to give up power. So he sets up all these different schemes. The DOJ will make them do an investigation. We'll do these fake electors. We'll try that. And I just want to show the fake electors from one of the states. Um, let's just take a look at that, because this is what it kind of looked like. Um, and there were, I think we're going to put it up right. And I think this might have been Michigan. So you had these people actually meet um, Joshua Arizona. Sorry, this is Arizona, by the way, a state that's also investigating, maybe similar to the way Georgia is doing, whether any laws were broken there. These fake elector meetings, how do they play into what you see as a potential prosecution? Right. Well, what we understand is that there were a group of people, both in the Trump campaign as well as in the White House, uh, chief among them, Trump, his, uh, his lawyers, John Eastman, and Kenneth Chesborough, uh, who essentially orchestrated, uh, as, as the evidence supports, uh, a plan to 
have a, an, a kind of alternate slate of electors meet. And that alternate slate, as, as they described it in their memos, the concept was that they would submit certificates to Congress saying, we are the actual electors that were elected by our state uh, in favor of Trump. Now, those certificates that they signed on to, that these, that these alternate electors signed on to, of course, were fabricated. They were false. Biden won those states. Now, the, the people actually signing on to those may themselves not have fully understood the, the process, what they would be used for, why they were being used in that particular way. But the evidence does seem to show that at least the orchestrators of the scheme knew that they were false, knew that they would be submitted to Congress and be used in a way, uh, in an effort to overturn a lawful election. And that right. violates, again, a whole host, potentially, of, of federal statutes. And, and Paul Butler, I, I wonder, as a prosecutor, when you look at this and you look through this memo, and it read pretty uh, coherent, co- you know, sort of cogently to me, um, does it matter if Donald Trump really believed that he lost? Because I just want to play you this. This is from the January 6th hearing. And this is a bunch of staffers saying, yep, yep, he knew he lost. So we're in the Oval and there's a discussion going on. And the president says, I think it's, it could have been Pompeo, but he says words to the effect of, yeah, we lost, we need, we need to let that issue go to the next guy, meaning President Biden. I remember maybe a week after the election was called, I popped into the Oval just to like give the president the headlines and see how he was doing. And he was looking at the TV and he said, can you believe I lost to this effing guy? Mark raised it with me on the 18th. And so following that conversation where the motorcade ride driving back to the White House, I said, like, does the president really think that he lost? And he said, you know, a lot of times he'll tell me that he lost, but he wants to keep fighting it. And he thinks that there might be enough to overturn the election. But, you know, he, he pretty much has acknowledged that he that he's lost. If you were bringing a case like this to trial, Paul, would you need him to know he lost? It certainly will help persuade the jury for crimes like obstruction of an official proceeding or conspiracy to defraud the United States that he had that criminal mind state. But, Joy, that's been established over and over. We just heard from Elisa Farrah Griffin, who was the White House communication director. She said Trump told her days after the election, can you believe I lost? Mark Miley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs Chief of Staff, says Trump told him he lost that December. Trump's people filed 60 lawsuits claiming fraud in the election, and they lost 60 times. There's audio of Steve Bannon saying before the election that Trump was going to say he won, even if he really didn't. I repeat, Bannon said that before the election. So, Joy, the evidence suggests that Trump knew he lost, but he just didn't care. As far as he was concerned, losing the election didn't mean that he still couldn't be president. And and that extraordinary subversion of democracy by a sitting president is exactly why Jack Smith has to prosecute this case. Uh, Joshua, let me ask you this question. Do you, you, you talked you, in your report, you guys talked about you assuming it's going to be a narrow prosecution. There are a lot of people who were a part of this scheme and there are a lot of witnesses and we can put up a whole list of them from Mike Pence to Mark Short to Jared Kushner. You can go on and on and on. If it's a narrow prosecution, the way it was in the documents case where it was just Waltine, Nana and Trump, who would you say should be the most nervous 
about being that second guy if there's a second guy prosecuted? Well, at a minimum, as a second guy, it's the one who shows up the most through the January 6th committee report, which is John Eastman, who drafted the memorandum, who orchestrated much of the the actual uh, uh, electoral use of the false electoral certificates and also the pressure campaign against Pence. Now, there's probably going to be several other people, but he's probably the one that needs to be most nervous. And uh, Paul, I will ask you, we did say say that, you know, a January 6th prosecutor was spotted going into the courthouse today, but not any witnesses, um, you know, seated. What does that tell you about what kind of a timeline we're looking? Because last time a prosecutor was spotted with no witnesses, Trump got indicted in the documents case. (laughs) As a prosecutor, I presented a whole bunch of cases to grand juries in that very same D.C. courtroom. I can tell you that Jack Smith is acting like he's about to bring charges for January 6th, and specifically the fake elector scheme. It was Donald Trump's big lie that authorized this criminal conspiracy. But as Joshua noted, the special counsel's charge allows prosecutions against everybody who's involved. So yeah, people who should also be worried include John Eastman, who created this scheme, and the people who apparently organized and financed it, like the my pillow guy, Mike uh, Lindell, Ruggi Giuliani is also a possible target, although he appears to be cooperating with the investigation for now, which which could help him get a deal. Yeah. Uh, Mark yeah. Meadows also, I think, is maybe cooperating. It's interesting. It remains fascinating. We'll keep watching this timeline. Uh, Joshua Stanton and Paul Butler, thank you both very, very much. And up next on The Readout, President Biden stands tall at the NATO summit, vigorously, embra- vigorously embracing the expanding alliance as world leaders eye America's plummeting inflation rate with envy. Yep, elections really do have consequences. The Readout continues after this. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. President Biden is closing out a week-long trip to Europe, where NATO cleared the path for its future member, Sweden, and vowed to embrace Ukraine when conditions are right. He spent the day in Helsinki with the leaders of Finland, Sweden, Norway, Denmark, and Iceland, celebrating the newest member, Finland. A strong display of unity for the alliance as Ukraine continues its counteroffensive against Russia's invasion. Biden's trip demonstrates the strength and endurance of the international coalition against a weakened Russia, just weeks after an attempted mutiny by the Wagner Group. At this critical moment in history, this inflection point, the world is watching to see 
Will we do the hard work that matters to forge a better future? Will we stand together? Will we stand with one another? Will we stay committed to our course? This week, Finland, the United States, and our allies and partners said a resounding, loud yes. Yes, we'll step up. Yes, we'll stand together. And yes, we'll keep working toward a stronger, safer, and more secure world. Biden's visit was a dramatic about-face for the United States. His predecessor was openly hostile to the NATO alliance and its members. In what looks like low-key shade, the Biden administration held today's events in Helsinki almost five years to the day after Trump stood side-by-side with Putin in that same city and told reporters he trusted the former KGB agent more than America's intelligence agencies. They said they think it's Russia. Uh, I have uh, President Putin... Uh, He just said it's not Russia. I will say this. I don't see any reason why it would be. So I have great confidence in my intelligence people. But uh, I will tell you that President Putin was extremely strong and powerful in his denial today. The former president, who likes to say the world is laughing at Biden, was technically the only president of the United States to be laughed at by the almost 200 members of the United Nations at the General Assembly. In less than two years, my administration has accomplished more than almost any administration in the history of our country. America's so true. (laughs) Didn't expect that reaction, but that's okay. Well, it's fair to say Biden is having a strong week. He's expanded NATO, embarrassed Putin, and overseen a significant drop in inflation, which could explain why MAGA Republicans are losing their marbles over in the House. Last night, House Republicans loaded up the National Defense Authorization Act, which funds the Pentagon, with a string of poison pill amendments that would end the Pentagon policy of reimbursing expenses for travel to obtain an abortion, prohibit the Department of Defense from providing gender-affirming care, and gut diversity and inclusion programs. Oh, and that's not all. Marjorie Taylor Greene, following the lead of her colleagues who want to defund the federal police, a.k.a. the FBI, well, she tried to insert an amendment that would strike $300 million in funding for Ukraine. But that was a bridge too far for the best for the rest of her caucus and didn't make it into the final version. However, the remaining demands endanger the passage of what is typically a bipartisan bill and faces a daunting path forward in the United States Senate. Joining me now is retired Admiral James Stavridis, former Supreme Allied Commander of NATO and MSNBC Chief International Analyst, and David Jolly, MSNBC political analyst and former Republican congressman who is no longer affiliated with the party. Thank you both for being here. And Admiral Stavridis, I do have to ask you just for a general comment on the difference in tone and stature for the United States and dignity for the United States and having a president like Joe Biden, who is an international, you know, sort of a a proud member of the international community uh, and doesn't, you know, suck up to Putin (laughs) in Helsinki and what we used to have. Yeah. Every time I see that footage from Helsinki, I I find it incredibly unbelievable that an American president would stand there and do that. And, uh, you know, I've known President Biden a long time when he was vice president. He visited many times to NATO. I've watched him sit at the dinner table at the ambassador's house and literally walk around and discuss every member of the alliance in detail. 
boy, does he understand the world and what a difference it makes. Um, we ought to really celebrate this moment, Joy, for the alliance and yeah. in particular, the accession of Sweden and Finland. These are two incredibly capable turnkey militaries. Sweden at one point provided my personal protection in Afghanistan, their special forces, their fighters, aircraft are incredible. The Finns have more combat capability on the ground than almost any nation in Europe. You know, that distant boom you hear is Vladimir Putin's head exploding at frustration with the upcheck of the alliance led by President Biden. Yeah, and I think the other boom that you might hear, the sort of echoing boom, David Jolly, might be the Republicans' heads exploding because they actually, I think it's almost as embarrassing that the United States Congress took a vote on whether to defund our ally that is being invaded by Russia. That they literally, that the fact that, you know, Kevin McCarthy had to let them take that vote, I think is also quite humiliating. Your thoughts? Yeah, but that's expecting a party that has no shame to be capable of feeling embarrassment. Yeah. And I think that's how Donald Trump has kind of reshaped the Republican Party. The admiral's exactly right. Joe Biden restored leadership on the world stage, restored, uh, restored diplomatic leadership. And if there is a domestic political contrast to be drawn, it is how Donald Trump led himself and reshaped the party, someone who is transactional by nature. So if if Vladimir Putin's the highest bidder, he's going to work with Putin over our alliance for freedom in NATO and also somebody with the vanity and narcissism that we watch. So if a, nearly a century of history has suggested that NATO is our strongest way of protecting freedom in the West, that wasn't Donald Trump's idea. So he doesn't like it. And what happened is that immaturity of leadership has infected the entire Republican Party. And you see it in these amendments on the floor of the House right now trying to defund our support of Ukraine. Yeah. And Admiral, I have to I'm going to play for you, Joe Biden, uh, President Biden's response, because you as somebody who is a leader of NATO and, and obviously as an admiral, a leader um, within the United States Navy, it just I wonder what how it strikes you that our the leadership of the United States Marines is being held hostage by one senator. Um, and he is no veteran. He has no military experience whatsoever, has not served the country in that way. Um, yet he still feels that because he's opposed to abortion, he can do this. Here's what President Biden had to say about Tommy Tuberville. He's jeopardizing U.S. security by what he's doing. I expect the Republican Party to stand up, stand up and do something about it. The idea that we're injecting into uh, fundamental foreign policy decisions what, in fact, as a domestic social debate on social issues, is bizarre. I don't ever recall that happening, ever. And it's, it's, a, it's, it's just totally irresponsible, in my view. Admiral, I'll just let you uh, add your thoughts. Um, the president, obviously, is exactly right. And, you know, Coach Tuberville, you know, is a football coach. He ought to understand that Teams need leaders, and you can't just rip out the coaches, and that's what's happening. We're going to have a U.S. Marine Corps, arguably our most elite fighting force, without a commandant for the first time in 150 years. You think Coach Tuberville would send his football team out onto the gridiron? And here's a newsflash. Our national security is not a game. We got to get past this, through it, over it, whatever it takes. But I, I yield to the distinguished congressman from Florida to tell me how to get the Republicans to take this on, please.
Well, I hate to say it, but he kind of did. I mean, he kind of did ditch his college football team to go to Alabama and left them in the lurch. So maybe he feels like that is a history he just would like to repeat with the entire Marine Corps. Uh, <laughs> let me throw it over to you. I mean, he did. Um, David Jolly, I want you to answer that. So please give us a sense of how that could change. But also, I'm going to ask you to respond after you tell us that to something else that is pretty bizarre. Go ahead. Yeah, I think to the admiral's point, this is just where the Republican Party has dramatically shifted. It used to be on matters of national security, the armed forces, particularly the National Defense Authorization Act and appointments that you granted the administration the leadership they needed. And certainly you wanted leadership in the top ranks, including currently yeah. where the Marine Corps is using an acting commandant. The party's changed. It's why I left. That was how I, I got my uh, settlement in, if you will. Uh, the, the, there's a big fight uh, on the Republican side about DEI. They don't like the idea of trying to recruit people of color who disproportionately already serve uh, in the United States military. Here is what one Eli Crane, representative out of Arizona, had to say about that today. Well, Mr. Chairman, though, that was unbelievably inspiring my amendment has nothing to do with whether or not colored people or black people or anybody can serve, okay? It has nothing to do with color, skin, your, any of that stuff. <clears throat> yeah, so that happened in the year of our Lord, 2023, David. Your thoughts? Yeah, Joy, un unsettling, I think, for all of us who just heard that. Eli Crane, a freshman member of Congress, endorsed by Donald Trump, an election denier who tried to get his home state to decertify the Biden election. So you do know where his personal politics are. I think the interesting thing is Congresswoman Beatty from Ohio asked to have those words stricken. She sure and did. as someone who's worked with the House for about 25 years, I did wonder, when was the last time in the congressional record the term colored people actually appears? Because you would hope it would be 70 years ago, 60 years, 50, a long time ago. Congresswoman Beatty tonight actually succeeded in having those words stricken from the congressional yeah. record. They will not appear. But I wonder <laughs> if they should, because it's a time stamp on Eli Crane and today's Republican Party. That's an excellent point. I wish we had more time. Admiral James Cerides, thank you very much, who actually uh, honorably had served, uh, including running NATO. Uh, and David Jolly, an honorable congressman uh, who left the party because he said, this ain't for me. <laughs> Thank you both very much. Still ahead, movie and TV actors join striking writers demanding better wages and working conditions with Disney CEO Bob Iger calling their demands unrealistic before heading home to one of his multi-million dollar mansions. We'll be right back. Laptops on. TVs streaming. Game console consoling. Smart thermostat set for cuddle time. Doorbell camera. Oh, my package is here. Fast, reliable, able to power tons of devices inside your home at once. All systems go. You are clear for takeoff. This is Xfinity Internet. Wi-Fi built to wow. And watch the short film The Aviators. Now playing at Xfinity.com. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Hi everyone, it's Katie Fang. Did you know my weekly show on MSNBC is now available as a podcast? With my decades of experience as a trial lawyer, you'll get an insider's perspective on all things legal. At a time when politics and the law are inextricably intertwined, my guests and I break down what's next and why it matters, both inside and outside the courtroom. Search for The Katie Fang Show wherever you're listening and follow.
today for the first time in decades. SAG-AFTRA, representing 160,000 television and movie actors, announced that they are going on strike. They're asking producers for increase. They're asking producers for increased minimum pay rates and streaming residuals, as well as guarantees about how AI will be used, similar to what TV and movie writers who have been on strike for more than 70 days are asking for. This is the first time since 1960 that both writers and actors have been on strike at the same time. Now, here's the thing. Despite working in glamorous Hollywood, actors and writers aren't all fabulously wealthy. Due to the rise of streaming and inflation, actors and writers are making less money than they were a few years ago, while CEO pay continues to increase. The Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers said in a statement that they had presented, quote, a historic deal and that the union has, quote, regrettably chosen a path that will lead to financial hardship. But the Guild says the alliance was unwilling to offer a fair deal. Here's SAG-AFTRA President Fran Drescher, who you might remember from her iconic sitcom role in The Nanny. We are the victims here. We are being victimized by a very greedy entity. I am shocked by the way the people that we have been in business with are treating us. I cannot believe it, quite frankly how far apart we are on so many things, how they plead poverty, that they're losing money left and right when giving hundreds of millions of dollars to their CEOs. It is disgusting. Shame on them. They stand on the wrong side of history. The strike goes into effect at midnight. Meanwhile, there appears to be no end in sight to the writer's strike, with industry sources telling Deadline that they're going to let the situation bleed out and that the end game is to allow things to drag on until union members start losing their apartments and losing their houses. Publicly, of course, the alliance is refuting that. Comcast, I should note, the corporation that owns our parent company, NBC Universal, is one of the entertainment companies represented by the Alliance. And some employees of NBC Universal are represented by the Writers Guild. Joining me now is actress Yvette Nicole Brown, who serves on the SAG after board. Uh, Yvette Nicole Brown, uh, thank you so much for being here. And look, I think because people see you, they see you on TV. And so I think they assume that every time they see you, a check is being cut, right? I mean, I think that's just the way people think about writers, actors, and everyone. And that's the way it should be, that whenever somebody's a rerun of a great show that you were in runs. Is that true? No, it's not true. And uh, for everyone that you see that is, first of all, thank you for having me, Joy. I love you. Um, For everyone that you see that appears to be balling out of control, there are thousands, thousands that are just getting by. And the thing about the writers, what they're fighting for and what we're fighting for is just a piece of the pie. Mm -hmm. These uh, producers are acting as if there's so much money going around and not enough money going around, but all the money is going into their yachts. They're doing well. They're getting these parachutes. They're, they're, they're getting 50 million a year, 30 million a year. And we're just trying to, can I get some groceries? (laughs) Can I, can I drive to work in a car that has gas in it? It's literally that serious. And um, I I felt that Fran Drescher and, and Duncan Crabtree Ireland today just laid it out in a way that it's very plain. If people have not seen that press conference, go and watch that press conference. The other thing I want to say, Joy, is that back in the day, um, you could live off of residuals. 
you would get you would do a show and then reruns would run and you'd get a couple of checks and they'd pay your bills. They're doing things now where you prepay your residuals. If you make anything over scale, that goes towards your residuals. And then on streaming, it takes they can play it 52 a whole bunch of times before you get a dime. There was uh, an actress from Orange is the New Black that showed her foreign residuals. There was like 200 hits of this show being watched. Her piece of the pie was twenty dollars. Come, Come on, on now. Come you on. Can live I mean, off of that. And, and I feel like the writers are in even a worse position, right? I mean, like you, like you said, a show used to be like 22 episodes, and now it's like six of Succession. And if Succession blows up, it's not like the writers get like a bonus, right? There's not extra money. Right. No, you get paid for the for the one you wrote. And then you have to right. wait for maybe a year and a half before you go back into production and write again. And the same thing with actors. When we have these short, sh- um, short uh, seasons of shows, you're on hold. For that year. So you do right. your 10 episodes and then you're waiting seven or eight months before you work again. If there's no residuals and you're not working, who's how are you paying your bills? How are you right. paying your bills? And then you add in the AI piece, Joy, where there's even there's clauses in our contracts right now that say they have the right to use our voice in this performance. If we don't carve out what AI is and what AI can do, they can take a performance from, say, community of my voice and model it and go, well, we already own her as Shirley. So let's now use the Shirley voice. And now I'm the voice of Cigna Healthcare. And I don't even know. You see what I mean? Like there's all these things that need to be stopped now. And this is the other thing. Anytime the producers say that they don't know if something's going to make money, I don't believe that's true. It happened with DVD, DVDs, mm-hmm. it happened with streaming. They always go, oh, I don't know, this DVD thing, who knows what's, what it's going to be. But they know full well that it's going to make them a lot of money. They don't put it yeah. forward unless they've already done all the metrics to know how much money they're going to make. And so we buy into the idea that it may not be profitable. And then we look up later and we're five, 10 years behind the curve and we're always chasing it. What they're trying to do now is get ahead of it. We know what AI is. We know that there's a problem with self-tape where, where actors are having to pay all this money to basically pay for an audition and pay for a job, which isn't right. The residual issue, healthcare, the, the amount that's going into our healthcare plan is not good. It's all just a crap show. And yeah. if we don't fight now, we'll never get the it. Thing, and the thing is, you know, look, it took Ron DeSantis to make me root for Bob Iger, uh, but he is making um, his new contract $27 million a year plus bonuses. So when folks are saying that these companies are struggling, when they're saying they're struggling, it's a lie. They're they're not struggling. They've got money to give him $27 million a year. Yeah. They want the money for, for the presidents and the heads of the networks and the studios and for the, for the shareholders. They're basically saying, look at all this money we're making, but how are you making the money? You don't have a show or a movie without writers. You don't have a show or a movie without actors. We are in the center, as Fred said today. We're creating this entertainment. And listen, I know it's scary. I know everybody's going to take a hit. But if Mm. we don't do it now, we will not have an industry. We will not. So I'm going to be right out there tomorrow with my sign and my shirt. And uh, here we go. We're going to show it today. But I'll be right (laughs) out there today, tomorrow, marching with the writers. And and let's do this. Let's, Let's have some solidarity and let's fight for what's right. Well, as you know, my, my big sister is an actress as well. So you might see her out there. Wave, wave hey to her if you see Miss June. Will, uh, sis, listen, listen, uh, I, thank you very much. Yvette Nicole Brown, my sister, I appreciate you. Um, and we okay. are with you. So we're going to keep the, keep track of this story. And coming up, what do you do when your policies are so unpopular they have zero chance of becoming law? Well, you enlist mobs of right-wing fanatics to bully your ideas into practice anyway. More next. We're going to walk down, and I'll be there with you. We're going to walk down to the Capitol. And we're going to cheer on our brave senators and 
congressmen and women. And we're probably not going to be cheering so much for some of them. After losing the 2020 election and countless legal challenges, Donald Trump decided that instead of conceding to the will of the American people, he would just fill his supporters' heads with lies about election fraud, riling up the base so much that they'd storm the U.S. Capitol on his behalf and try to force Congress to change the election results. While all he had to do was sit in the White House and watch the chaos unfold. Well, today we are seeing the Republican Party adopt a similar strategy, except instead of riling up a mob to storm the Capitol, they're empowering their supporters to implement and enforce their anti-woke culture war initiatives on their behalf. Right wing legislators are currently faced with the reality that the draconian policies that they want are both wildly unpopular and straight up undemocratic. So much like Donald Trump did, they're relying on little mobs of Karens and Tuckers to do the dirty work for them. In Texas, for instance, Republicans passed an abortion ban that relies solely on private citizens for enforcement, not the government. The law incentivizes Texans with a cash bounty if they succeed in suing anyone who has helped another person obtain an abortion, essentially empowering anti-abortion extremist bullies to tattle for cash on any doctors who perform the procedure or even an Uber driver who gave someone a ride to a clinic. And then there are the book bans. Republicans across the country want school libraries stripped of any book that mentions gay people or black history, even though the majority of their voters do not want that. So little gangs of their right wing allies, often allied with or members of extremist groups like Moms for Liberty, are bombarding school boards with claims that these books are grooming or corrupting children and getting them ripped off school library shelves. Sometimes the objectors are parents with kids in the school, sometimes not even close. And it is a minuscule number of people doing this, creating policies that everyone in that district or county or state has to follow. Your kid, their choice. A study from the Washington Post found that the majority of the 1,000 book challenges last year were filed by just 11 people. And in North Carolina, Republicans want to take it one step further, introducing a bill they claim would give parents more authority over their children's education, but will really just make it easier for parents to get school superintendents fired and librarians sued for simply doing their job. The Karen crusade doesn't end there. It expands to Republicans' other favorite tactic, voter suppression. Some states have laws that allow citizens to challenge the voter registrations of anyone for almost any reason. And new reporting from ProPublica found that in Georgia, tens of thousands of voter registrations were challenged by just six right-wing activists. The reporter who broke that story joins me next. When Georgia Governor Brian Kemp signed a voter suppression bill under a painting of a former slave plantation, he empowered pretty much any Georgian to challenge an unlimited number of voters in their county. Voter challenges soon proliferated. And thanks to a new investigative report by ProPublica, we know more about who these amateur fraud hunters really are. Turns out close to 100,000 voter registrations have been challenged in Georgia, almost all by just six is not a typo. Six right-wing activists. One of those so-called activists is Frank Schneider, an election denier who has submitted more, submitted more than 30,000 challenges. His targets include Joseph Riggs, a Democrat who began using a P.O. box as his permanent mailing address after he became homeless. The elections office contacted Riggs and asked him to appear at a board hearing to explain his registration at a P.O. box. Riggs was living in a tent in the woods, juggling jobs at McDonald's, Dollar Tree, and a gas station.
Station. Attending the hearing would require an expensive Uber ride and force him to take unpaid time off work. Ultimately, he did not contest his removal from the rolls. I was really angry, Riggs said. When you're homeless, your vote is the only voice you've got. Joining me now is the writer of this piece, Doug Bach-Clark, investigative reporter at ProPublica. Thank you, sir, for being here. Uh, let, start, start with telling me, um, because six people, and it's a lot of challenges, who is backing the people who are filing these challenges? Thanks for having me on. Of those six people, five of those people are associated with right-wing organizations whose leaders helped challenge the 2020, uh, the results of the 2020 election. So we're talking about um, organizations like the Election Integrity Network, which is led by Cleta Mitchell, um, mm. a, a conservative lawyer who was part of the infamous call in which Trump asked for the Georgia Secretary of State to help overturn the election and find find him 11,000 or so votes. And um, we're also talking about Look Ahead America and Voter GA. Um, and these, these, one of the extraordinary things, as you mentioned in your lead up about empowering anyone to do these challenges, is that the people who have taken up the Georgia legislature's opening of that opportunity almost all have very strong ties to right wing groups and mm. who are, are, are very politically conservative and active. This is not an equally balanced set of people who are making these challenges. Are, are the groups that they, the people they target, is there any kind of pattern to the kinds of people they target? So ProPublica was able to do a data analysis matching the people that they challenged against um, records of, of who voted in which primaries. And so we found that they were challenging at a disproportionately high rate people who voted in the Democratic primaries, um, which strongly suggests that they were targeting, so that some of them were targeting Democrats. Where are they specifically char targeting, for instance, Fulton County, which I know uh, bedeviled Donald Trump, and that's where he wanted to find his 11,000 votes? Are they targeting specific counties? Yes, the, the vast majority of these challenges are happening in, in the Atlanta area, whether it's Fulton counties or other outlying suburbs of Atlanta, which, as you know, is, is a Democratic stronghold in Georgia. And, and I, I ask about all of this because, of course, Republicans have uh, floated a bill that they would like to pass on a national level that's modeled after the Georgia bill. So they would like to take this strategy nationally. How does somebody sign up to become uh, essentially an inquisitor who can strike, attempt to strike people off the voter rolls? So the, the changes, the 2021 changes in the Georgia's election law allows anyone to do this. Any Georgia citizen can challenge anyone else within their county. Um, it really lowers the bar and made explicit that anyone could do this with against unlimited other Georgians. Um, so it just made this very easy and it opened the door for a very, very large amount of challenges, which has impacted both voters and election officials. Right. I mean, the, the reality is it's very Soviet. You know, it gives you sort of inform on your neighbors and get them uh, essentially disenfranchise them. Um, have, have these people found any voter fraud? Because there is voter fraud. I mean, there's a guy in Ohio and the Cleveland, a Cleveland Plain Dealer reports a, a Trump supporter who double voted in two consecutive elections. He says it, it was an accident, even though he did it twice. So there are some people they just keep turning out to be Trump voters. Have they discovered any sort of criminals through these challenges? So county officials that we spoke to said that they were not aware of any of these challenges sort of turning up any cases of malicious voter fraud. And state officials said that they did not track that information. Right. So and has, as one, is anyone, yeah, go ahead. 
I mean, as one expert pointed out to us, you know, if these people, if these challengers claim they're doing this for, you know, good reasons to clean the voter rolls, but they're really impacting, um, you know, many, many Democratic voters and making it harder for them to vote in some cases. Um, yeah. Really, why are they doing this? That, for that reason. <laughs> I think at least that, that, that seems to be the Occam's razor answer. Uh, Doug Bot-Clark, thank you. Excellent reporting. Much appreciated. And that is tonight's readout. When news breaks, go beyond the headlines with the new MSNBC app. New developments in the legal drama surrounding former President Donald Trump. Get real-time analysis from live blogs to in-depth essays, video highlights from your favorite shows and hosts. Lots of news of all kinds going on right now. And the latest updates on the 2024 election. The rematch is on. It's Trump-Biden part two. Go beyond the what to understand the why. Download the app now at msnbc.com slash app.